It's March 26th, 2017, and this is episode 334 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. On today's episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin, I'm here with Andreas Antonopoulos. Hey! And Stephanie Murphy. Hi! And after a little over a month away, we are back. And uh, quite a lot has happened in the time that we've been gone. Man, I thought that we'd have a little bit of kind of time to catch up, but th- there's more news that's happened in this last month than happened probably in the prior four months. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, we thought we could take a vacation and everything would be quiet while we were away, but we were totally wrong. <laughs> Wait, hang on. Does Bitcoin have drama? <laughs> I don't know. I guess after a while you kind of just tune it out, but it does seem like things that were simmering for a long time have kind of come to the front. So I think let's probably start with one of the less interesting things uh, relative to some of the more internal stuff. One of the things that's been interesting about Bitcoin and kind of like a big point of risk and concern for a long time has been the overwhelming dominance of Bitcoin exchanges that operate out of China. Just like mining, there's been a huge concentration in China. And while we were on the break, (laughs) the Bank of China basically came out and did a couple of raids, essentially. Raids is not when some people make an appointment and show up with briefcases and say, hello, let's sit down and have a chat, which is what happened. That was hardly a raid. Um, They did some inspections. They did some spot inspections and audits. I think that's a more appropriate word. I'm just saying. No, no, I, I think that that's a valid point. Personally, I've seen enough movies about Wall Street to think of guys with those suits and briefcases and deals that you can't refuse. I think this, you know, it's a fine line, but I understand what you're saying there. The particularly interesting part to me is that concern, right? The concern about that concentration and what does it mean, right? What does it mean? Like we saw the Bitcoin ETF, which we're going to talk about later. That was a big concern with regards to the ETF because so much of the trading happened in China. It was largely kind of outside the scope of what the US regulator could see and control. So basically the Chinese regulator, the People's Bank of China went in and said, you're doing all of these things that don't really violate the law because we haven't really made any rules about this, but we're going to give you some updated guidance that you should change these things. So one of the things that Chinese exchanges did, not necessarily uniquely, but a lot more than uh, exchanges elsewhere in the world is use a essentially fee-free trading system where you put money into the system, you can trade at either very low or no fees, especially if you have quantity behind you and you're doing a lot of volume. And what this does is it essentially allows for kind of a high frequency trading environment to emerge. Normally, there has to be a good economic reason to do a trade because there's a cost to doing every trade, even if it's very small. But when you have a no fee environment, then you can actually create money simply by pushing around market sentiment and just like kind of picking up the sub pennies from doing this. And then there are other kind of deeper manipulations that you can get into with this. But the bottom line is once these kind of uh, controls came down on the Chinese exchanges, we saw the, the market share go from above 90%, I believe, to below 20% um, in terms of where the actual trading action is happening in the world with regards to Bitcoin. And people were very concerned about this. This was like, you know, this was another one of those things where it's like, oh, well, this means that if China gets whacked hard, 
then Bitcoin's going to get whacked hard because China is such a big part of Bitcoin. And what we actually saw was just, as far as I can tell, at least at this point, was kind of a massive rebalancing where a lot of that volume went away because it wasn't really economical trading action to begin with. It was just kind of this picking up sub pennies, you know, high frequency trading sort of thing. And so what was a very concentrated kind of risky situation when it was actually forced into reality actually wound up being something that sort of self-corrected because the problem made itself apparent and people kind of fixed the behavior. <laughs> what did I get wrong there? Uh, what do you think about it? Well, it sounds like you're saying that it was kind of necessary for the government to step in and or the central bank to step in and say it's not OK to let people trade with no fees. And that just sounds off to me because I just don't think that it's ever necessary for, you know, governments to control how people can do their transactions. That's the reality of what happened, whether or not it's a good thing or a bad thing, whether or not it's their job to do it or, you know, or they're overstepping whatever bounds they have. Uh, that is what happened. There wasn't a catastrophic crash in Bitcoin. There was a rebalancing of where the trade volume happened. So things that were, you know, not small players, but it, again, it's it's like, you you know, you pour water into a pool and that it just rises until it, it fills, you know, and it's kind of relatively even. No, no, I know what you mean. They, they found a new equilibrium once the, right. the conditions changed. Thank you. That's the word I was looking for. Right. So, I mean, I guess for me, that brings up the question of like, well, what do we think about no fee trade? Is it is it inherently a bad thing? Is it bad for people to be able to do lots of trades at very little cost? I don't think it is inherently a bad thing. It depends. Like there are circumstances in which a free for all completely open market. Yeah, I mean, that's great if it can regulate itself simply through market forces because there's free movement of capital opportunities for arbitrage competition from other exchanges um, a worldwide flat um, environment with no friction then you can have a market emerge none of those things exist right we're talking about an environment where there's very little competition relationships with banking institutions define who has access to run these exchanges. There's friction, there's currency controls, there's no possibilities for arbitrage. It's happening primarily in China because in other places there is regulation that prevents that from happening. And so to say we we should really let the free market flourish, well, letting the free market flourish in a very narrow range of activity while all of the other things are regulated, creates imbalances that the free market itself can't correct. So unfortunately, part of the problem here is that all of the other activities that created this environment of exchanges in China are tightly regulated. So, you know, I think maybe in this particular case, not having high frequency trading may have stabilized the market. But at the same time, I would rather see a free market but a free market would be a free market everywhere and a free market that had full access to banking facilities and a free market where you could arbitrage and move your money out of the country and do all of the things that you can't really do. So it's not really a free market. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. So how much volume was actually sort of coming from this high frequency trading? Do we know as a 90% of it? <laughs> okay, that's I mean, a lot. I mean, it dropped by 90% overnight, and surprisingly enough, the price didn't change. So people basically rebalanced, and they, they, they started doing trades only when the spread in the trade justified the transaction fee. Right. That, that means making 
you, you actually need to reduce the number of trades. So if high frequency trading was taking advantage of spreads that were lower than even the transaction fee that an exchange might, might charge, it makes sense that the fee is zero. Another thing worth mentioning about kind of this uh, fee-free trading is that it's not actually fee-free. It just changes where the fee is charged. And so because of that, it kind of it changes the incentives. If you charge on a per-transaction basis or a per-trade basis, even if it's a very, very low fee, like Andreas is saying, there's some kind of economic friction or some kind of economic math that you have to do to say, is this worth doing? And it prevents things from happening below a certain threshold. What exchanges that do this generally do is they'll charge you money when you take money out of the exchange. So the incentive is to make as much money as you can, however you can, within the exchange using as many trades as you want, which is good for the exchange because it looks like more activity and volume. And then at the end, you take it out and they take some small percentage when you leave. And it's that it's it's the anything leaving their system that they're actually charging for. So and it also disincentivizes people from taking the money out of the exchange, exactly. which could be dangerous. Right. Because well, we yeah. all know what happened with Mt. Cox. Yeah, it's incentivized custodial exchanges. And I think that's the real issue right now. So we're now facing this other issue, which is that same time that fees were introduced, less than a week later, the PBOC set new requirements, which the exchanges have not yet been able to fulfill. Presumably, these requirements are mostly to do with reporting and AML and KYC and require some upgrades, the compliance mechanisms that they're using, et cetera, et cetera. But as a result, these exchanges have now frozen withdrawals. Now, I'm still not quite clear if they've frozen withdrawals of Bitcoin, but not Yuan, or if they've frozen bit, uh, withdrawals of both Bitcoin and Yuan or just Yuan. I'm not sure, but they have frozen withdrawals. And one of the concerns that a lot of people have and the nervousness that happens with custodial exchanges when you see any kind of delay in withdrawals is, are they operating at full reserve? And of course, that's another thing that the PBOC has asked for clarification is proof of reserves, which has not yet been clarified. So all of this is making people a bit nervous. The volume has dropped. The price seems unaffected at the moment. But I'm, I'm certainly nervous about custodial exchanges and how real their Bitcoin reserves are. Yeah, I think there's a good reason to be nervous about that. In some ways, this does sort of remind me of just how things felt in 2013 when there was the big, the first big run up in Bitcoin price when Gox was going belly up. And there was also an altcoin run at the same time. And we're sort of seeing that happen well right now, although it maybe have more to do with the, the Bitcoin scaling issues that are going on as well. But the, there's also sort this sort of Bitcoin prices going up and I missed the boat on that. People have this psychological thing where they think they missed the boat on Bitcoin, but then they can get the second boat on some altcoin. I don't know if you guys, if that's similar to your take on it or or what, but it reminds me a little bit of what we've experienced in the past. Yeah, FOMO, fear of missing out, and it's playing out quite strongly in, in the else. And every time I think that there's some drop in Bitcoin, a lot of people start betting on alternatives, and a lot of the weak hands get washed out and and end up in in the else trying to hedge in a different currency, uh, which is great. I mean, you know, if you look at it in the big picture, the entire ecosystem has grown tremendously this year much deeper liquidity, much more volume. Just today, the cryptocurrency space as a whole, for the first time in history, broke the $1 billion traded in volume in a single day. Considering that the entire space is just about $24, $25 billion, 
1 billion trading, which is, you know, one over 25 of the entire capitalization of the market moving in a single day. That's a pretty big result. And did that continue the next day or was it just basically one or a few whales that were trading? Like, is that a sustainable thing or... It's been fairly consistent. It's been bumping up against that number for a very long time now. So the volumes have been very high in Bitcoin consistently for a very long time now. And they continue to be very high. And so that's great. I mean, the entire space has grown tremendously. And I I think we need to look at that. There's a lot of, obviously, there's a lot of tribalism going on. You know, my coin's winning, your coin's losing, neener, neener, neener silly because I think these fluctuations where you see money flowing from from one place to another inside the ecosystem generally is reflected also by influx, influx from fiat, which is good for everyone. So the entire space is growing and it's growing in a very robust manner. And I think that's great for all of the space. And we shouldn't really lament the fact that you know, oh, maybe this this particular month, Bitcoin is less than 80% of the total market cap of a beautifully growing pie. So there were a number of rules and requirements that the People's Bank of China put in place for these exchanges before they can open up uh, again. And there were two others that I kind of want to talk about. One is they can't do margin trading and they can't do basically leverage at all which is a huge change for a lot of the exchanges that are going to be affected by this. Some of them offered up to 100 times essentially leverage. So you essentially bet, you know, you use a dollar to trade and you get $100 worth of risk for for good or for bad. Wow, what could go wrong? Yeah, exactly. I'm not one to applaud government regulation, but it does seem like they cleaned up some of kind of the shadier stuff that was going on there that does have, you know, an impact on the stability of Bitcoin simply because it allows people to take a small amount of money, make crazy bets and try to move the market with that. I mean, that's the kind of long term play for any of these high frequency, you know, things is you're either trying to exploit that or if you're big, you're trying to actually create those types of situations by making other people feel like they're going to miss out, you pump the price, things like that. So, you know, it seems like it's a net positive to me. But I wanted to ask, you know, as far as leverage or margin is concerned, are there good uses of it in Bitcoin or cryptocurrency exchanges at this point that uh, either of you can think of? Absolutely. Leverage trading basically allows people to borrow and invest and borrow in one currency and invest in another because they have a very strong feeling. In in a way, it's one way to amplify a flight from capital. So if, for example, you feel strongly that the, the yuan is getting diluted through enormous debt generation by the central bank because they're printing currency like like they're running out of ink, only unfortunately they don't run out of ink. And they keep printing and printing and printing. Well, uh, you know, if you're an average investor, you may take a leveraged bet where you borrow in yuan and invest in Bitcoin. What's the difference between doing that using a credit card or using a personal loan or using leveraged trading? Not really much difference, except, of course, that a credit card and a personal loan would be a regulated industry and these exchanges are not part of the regulated credit making industry and the People's Bank of China is very uncomfortable having these organizations be part of the credit generating industry without without regulating them or without regulating them in the same way that they regulate credit card issuers or other creditor organizations. 
But I, it's not that different, right? So from an economic perspective, if you borrow money to start a business or if you borrow money to make a financial investment, there's risk there. If someone is willing to lend you the money, they're taking risk. And if you default on that loan, they're going to lose money and so will you. But risk-taking is also one of the ways that you generate investment. So it's a double-edged sword. It, it really depends on the environment in which these risks are being taken and how well-informed the investors are and how well they've developed their skills in investing. And unfortunately, the only way to learn and the only way to develop skills in this space is to get burned <laughs> you know, by losing money. Again, no, no, no one's going to teach you risk until you lose money. So the last thing that the People's Bank of China required, it's kind of the weird outlier that's been talked about a bit. I don't really think we even understand exactly what's being said, but the gist of it is that exchanges can't replace money with cryptocurrency. So it either means that they can't like create merchant payment systems that allow their users to use Bitcoin or cryptocurrency contained within their exchanges for like commercial transactions, or it might mean that the exchange itself isn't allowed to pay its vendors and its service providers in cryptocurrency. They, they have to use government sponsored money, basically. That was just kind of one of the weird ones, but it, it kind of seems to fall in place with the uh, the SEC's decision on the Bitcoin ETF, right? Or, or today's European Parliament report that is trying to apply very, very similar regulation across the entire European Union. You know, there are very, very strong warnings that this is not legal tender, should not be confused as legal tender, should not be promoted by the government as an alternative means of payment. Should be very clear that they're nourishing, but not not discouraging that everything to be KYC AMLs and and strictly controlled and um, reducing risk to consumers as they put it. So they're trying to wrap controls around this and at the same time they're trying to say this isn't real money, right? Let's make it very clear. We do not endorse and our regulation is not intended to endorse this as real money and we don't want you making people believe that this is real money. It's a really funny way of approaching this. It's, it's very defensive in its nature. It is defensive. So maybe that says something, that they're scared. <laughs> of course. I mean, this, these, these things offend the very control over and a very important power of the state, which is the power to create money. And the problem is that they know very well that this is real money and people are beginning to use it as real money and they see the writing on the wall. No matter what controls they place, they do not effectively control what people get to choose to believe is real money. People will believe what is real money based on what value they can get for it and how stable it is and how well it behaves as money, not which flag is printed on it. And that change in attitude is extremely scary for regulars. Here's the other thing that I find fascinating. Um, the announcements by the PBOC in several different interviews and press conferences and things like that that happened at the same time where they said, we absolutely understand that we want to apply a light touch to this. And the reason they stated is because if we just shut them down, all of this activity will move to over-the-counter, unofficial, untracked black markets where we will have zero visibility. I think that realization is really important. They understand that they have to take a light touch because banning is not an option. It simply moves it underground. Yeah, 
it definitely seems like something where they're trying to balance the Streisand effect on one hand. You know, they need to address this. They feel like that it's sort of running away from them or that at least it could run away from them. So they need to kind of get out in front of it and pour some water on it. But at the same time, you have that kind of legitimizing effect that we've seen over and over again, where every time, you know, the government or a large company kind of talks about this stuff, well, they're introducing it to all kinds of people who actually weren't aware of it, because even though there are, you know, users of it, it still is such a minority in comparison to any population out there. I don't know how fast I was expecting it to grow, but I think that, you know, we still have a long way to go before cryptocurrency users or, you know, people who actually like using cryptocurrency compared to other options become any sort of, you know, meaningful group. So, Andreas, the Bitcoin ETF was kind of an interesting situation. It's been in the works for a long time. There are a couple of others out there that are making an attempt besides the Winklevoss with the, uh, what's it called, coin? Yes. I thought it was the Gemini ETF or something. No, Gemini is their exchange. Well, there's the Solidex one, and then there's, I, I believe, coin is Silbert's group, which is basically a retail ETF version of the GBTC. Gotcha. So why don't you run us through kind of what happened there just briefly and we can chat about it. They said no. <laughs> <laughs> but but why did they say no? Because Bitcoin is it's not a completely regulated market or something like that. The reason they said no, according to the report, is that, among other things, because Bitcoin is insufficiently regulated. And, and what they mean is that all of the exchanges where trading takes place, not all of them are regulated consistently, which means that they can be manipulated by market manipulators. And part of what they said, which was interesting, they said there's insufficient surveillance sharing. Now, surveillance in this terminology has a very specific meaning. They're not talking surveillance in NSA terms. They're talking surveillance in terms of information sharing agreements between exchanges and regulators that ensure that they report violations of AML and KYC rules. So that's really what they're talking about. What they're saying is not enough of the exchanges that trade Bitcoin are covered by regulations on AML, KYC, and the regulations that the SEC applies to various trading houses to make them comfortable. It's insufficiently regulated for their taste. And uh, as I tweeted shortly after, that's a feature, not a bug. But what that means most likely is that the, the following ETFs are unlikely to be approved for exactly the same reasons. And it, it may be many years before that changes, if it ever changes. I feel this is all a good thing. I think the ETF was a pretty dangerous thing. Why do you think it was dangerous? Well, I mean, think about what an ETF is. It's basically sending Bitcoin to be exposed to all of the get-rich-quickness of it as a speculator, but you don't get to use it because you'll never hold it or hold the keys. So you can't use it as a currency. You can't use it as anything other than a speculative investment where the very essence of your participation in Bitcoin is to have it held by a third-party custodial who's going to have control over potentially hundreds of millions of dollars worth of Bitcoin, and they're going to keep the keys safe. Don't you worry. Uh, no one's going to hack them and steal them all. They get to make decisions on your behalf as to which side of a fork to follow and which consensus rules to apply. Have enormous power over the entire system, be able to control a lot of the liquidity in the system, and all of that is in the hands of a third party, a trusted third party. That's the antithesis of everything Bitcoin. It's like, don't use it at all as a currency, use it purely as speculation and give all of your keys to someone else. Why on earth do we want that in Bitcoin, 
right? That and and what happens when that gets hacked? When those Bitcoin get stolen and these investors get burned, regulators turn around and say, "See, Bitcoin isn't secure." Well, yeah, if you use it that way, it's not. If you try to do traditional custodial banking on it, of course it's not secure. Traditional custodial banking is the reason regulation exists. It's because custodials will steal your money. The whole point of Bitcoin is control it, hold it yourself, manage your own keys, manage your own security, and use it as a currency, all of which the ETF doesn't do. So we're teaching the very wrong lessons. And quite honestly, if you don't have the technical skills, and if the interfaces aren't easy enough, and the access to the system isn't easy enough for you to own and control your own Bitcoin, you shouldn't be investing it in the first place. Now, I agree with that. But there were people who were excited about this, that it was sort of bringing access to Bitcoin in a way, at least to speculate on it, down to a level where some people could participate who wouldn't want to participate if they had to go through the trouble of actually learning how to use Bitcoin firsthand. That's not access to Bitcoin. That What that is, is exposure to the price volatility of Bitcoin through a vehicle that allows people to speculate but not use Bitcoin, which precludes them access to Bitcoin itself. It basically allows them to gamble with it without actually using it as a currency. And that's the worst kind of thing to encourage in my opinion. Would that have increased the price of Bitcoin? Sure. Yeah, that might be the real reason why people were excited about it, I guess. I think that's the only reason. Of course it's the only reason. It's it's a get-rich-quick scheme, and, and, and that encourages the worst kind of attitude towards Bitcoin. It's already bad enough that most people's first interaction with Bitcoin is not by earning it through their labor, but by signing up to a quasi-bank, trading it on an exchange as if it's a stock. That's already how we introduce most users to Bitcoin. And that's already creating the wrong impression of what Bitcoin is, at least in my opinion. I don't think that's what Bitcoin is. I don't think Bitcoin is particularly good as a speculative trading instrument. It's way too volatile for most investors, and it doesn't really have any significant benefits for other trading instruments. The real use of this is as a currency, is as a payment network, is and and for that you have to own the keys. I think the other thing, the other kind of bullet that was dodged here is the fact that nobody really knows what the price of Bitcoin is. And if you look at where Bitcoin prices come from, a lot of them are averages. A lot of them someone picks their favorite exchange and uses that. But there's no real one price of Bitcoin out there. And what happens when you have an ETF, especially when there's just one ETF out there that's high profile and that's how people think about a thing, is that the tail can kind of wag the dog, where even though the ETF might represent, say, just 1% of the total you know, supply, because it is this very large concentrated vehicle and has legitimacy through this kind of variety of prismatic views, it makes it so that it's easier for people to say that's the price of Bitcoin because that's what the ETF is indicating it and the ETF tracks the price. So you kind of have this reverse logic to actually have the price of Bitcoin become the price of the ETF rather than the other way around. So by not having an ETF, you basically still have the problem of what is the price, but you also don't have that ability to manipulate the vehicle that then is the price. Well, not quite. And this is where another financial industry group has taken a different approach. And I have to do a disclaimer because I'm involved in this project. Chicago Mercantile Exchange now publishes two 
references, the Bitcoin reference rate and the Bitcoin index. And one is a daily snapshot and the other one is a real-time index. These two are produced by compiling volume-weighted averages across a number of exchanges, all of which fill a set of published criteria through a public deliberation process where you people can nominate an exchange for inclusion. They can also report an exchange for violating some of the inclusion rules of this, and it's run by an oversight committee with three independent members. I'm one of them. Um, another one is a professor of Imperial College, and there is a number of cryptocurrency experts, as well as financial experts from the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. Now, the interesting thing is Chicago Mercantile Exchange is not trading Bitcoin in this particular case, and they're not holding any Bitcoin. But what they're assembling is a reference rate. This is extremely useful, in my opinion, because for the same reason that the London interbank overnight rate is for setting contractual obligations. If I want to say in a commercial contract, pay me in Bitcoin, at what price? I can now say at the advertised daily rate of the Chicago Mercantile Exchange Bitcoin reference rate. And that actually provides a really nice average rate that has a public process for deciding what is counted and what isn't and how the algorithm works. That's very useful, and it doesn't involve taking other people's keys. How long has that project been underway, Andreas? Uh, the project itself has been underway for more than a year, but the uh, reference rate, which is in beta, was announced in October. That's really cool. So, no ETF. Seems like we don't really think that this matters much. Seems like it's mostly about the price, you know, as far as whether or not the ETF is a good thing or, or has kind of these other downsides that we've been talking about. So, given that there are a couple of other ETFs in the pipe, I mean, is this just a game that they should give up, or you know, they just keep going because there's enough money at the end of the rainbow that whoever does finally make it through, whether through lawsuits or through an approval, because you know enough time has passed. What do we think of ETF, uh, the future of Bitcoin ETFs moving forward? Jurisdictional arbitrage. This is where it gets funny, because of course the SEC said no, but the SEC is not the only regulator and not the only jurisdiction around. And although they believe that they can set the rules for the entire world, as most U.S. federal agencies do, in fact, there are plenty of places around the world that may approve exchange-traded funds on other exchanges, international exchanges, that are accessible to U.S. investors through those exchanges. So if the Japanese Exchange Commission decides to approve an ETF on the Tokyo Exchange or um, a European Exchange or who knows, somewhere, these exchanges actually may be available. So you might see now competition between jurisdictions as to who does the first ETF. I think that really is going to start showing some cracks in this idea that regulators in one location can apply this kind of universal attitude towards regulation, where the rules are imposed on the entire planet. So on the other side of that, so we've got the legal attempts at doing these ETFs that are allowing dollars that you know want to go into this as an investment don't actually care about the underlying right so we've got the etf vehicle to get dollars into bitcoin basically and then on the other side in the last two or three weeks i've been contacted by about three different groups that are all claiming to be launching the first altcoin investment fund and basically what this is is it's essentially people putting together indexes 
um, where they take a bunch of money, they invest in, you know, the top 50 or top 100 tokens that they think are great for whatever reasons. And then they're issuing a token or actual actually doing equity in some cases that represents essentially that basket. And so I kind of see this as the that's the other side, really, of what's being attempted here, right? It's not dollars moving into Bitcoin. It's Bitcoin basically moving into altcoins. Um, but still, like the person who who invests the Bitcoin doesn't get any of the altcoins. They're just getting back essentially this this bearer instrument that then is supposedly worth its underlying. But, you know, you can't actually recover it for that. Yeah, I guess who's going to stop them? <laughs> well, in theory, the regulators. But yeah, that's kind of the thing is that, you know, like most of these are like anonymous groups of people and stuff like that. So you kind of have on the one side the highly regulated approach, which is turning out to be really hard. And then on the other side, you've got the people who just have a bunch of Bitcoin money who, <laughs> you know, are not doing the regulated thing, going the anonymous route. And they're going to be able to do it, but then they have all this legal exposure if the regulator ever does catch up with them. All right, children, this is the time to sing the counterparty risk song. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, seriously, how many times have we got to say this? Your keys, your coins, not your keys, not your coins. Why the hell would you buy an index into altcoins when you can buy the underlying asset itself? The whole point of this entire thing that was started with Bitcoin is that you can own and control the underlying asset itself in digital form and with all of the flexibility that comes from owning a certificate, only you actually own the underlying asset. And people look at that and say, how about we give you a certificate and we'll own the asset on your behalf. And that's when all of us have to start singing the counterparty risk song. The Bitcoin community, the cryptocurrency community also, I guess, but the Bitcoin community specifically has really been ripping itself to pieces over this continued issue. And we hit kind of a new milestone, I guess, last week, which we're going to talk about as I think our second topic in this one, that is, to my knowledge, the first time there's actually been an attempted, not necessarily attack, but there's been an exploit in one version of Bitcoin that was uh, like intentionally used to to mess up the people who are who are kind of supporting that side i haven't actually like you you see people arguing you see people fundamentally just like hating each other because they disagree with each other but i don't think we've actually seen any technological vulnerability attacks yet i would disagree with that assessment sorry i i would disagree i would say that we have seen several vulnerability attacks several different aspects of vulnerabilities Part of the reason we're talking about SegWit as a solution today is because of the persistent transaction malleability attacks that happened in 2013 and again in 2014, where actors were deliberately malleating uh, transactions. Also seen attacks against the mempool for two years now, well-funded attacks, which consistently with chained bogus transactions that are just moving coins in circular arrangements from address to address in order to inflate and crowd out mempool, either to drive up fees or to drive up delays and push the point that we need to expand size. So those attacks have been happening for a very long time. We've seen all kinds of attacks, spoofed uh, signature IDs of nodes and agents. We've seen um, denial of service attacks against uh, mining pools. You know, here's the thing. The bottom line is, on the one hand, these attacks have been happening for a while. And on the other hand, welcome 
to Bitcoin. This is a network-based adversarial security protocol. And guess what? It gets better because it gets attacked. So you shouldn't assume that Bitcoin is going to operate in an environment of goodwill, unicorns, and rainbow ponies. This is going to be an adversarial environment. And in this adversarial environment, if you put something out that has a weakness, it's going to get punched. I think that that's a fair argument. I guess the point that I'm making, though, is still basically there, which is that I don't think that this is going to change. It seems like this is getting progressively worse. We're seeing continued escalations. You're talking about, you're saying basically the reason that we are dealing with the scaling issue at all is because of a persistent attack or because of multiple persistent attacks that have essentially caused the scaling issue to become an issue sooner rather than later. That may be true. It's it's a contest, right? Like both sides are trying to win the contest of hearts and minds effectively for people who are you know running nodes to flag these changes and to make it so that whatever reality they want to be the reality that moves forward is the one that wins. Let me just take a step back and just say, I don't know what's going to happen, but I see no paths forward that involve these sides agreeing to the point of 95% consensus. Does, does this get resolved? I mean, like SegWit requires a 95% activation threshold, so 95% consensus. Let's just assume 10% from each side are totally like committed to their side, which is totally plausible because, again, these different visions of Bitcoin have different winners and losers. And so, you know, the people who are incentivized, who are going to be the losers under one scenario, but the winners under another scenario, they have a real meaningful incentive not to compromise. And as far as I can tell, there's not actually a reason for either side to do so. Yeah, no, I mean... I think it's rare in a democratic situation, which is kind of what Bitcoin resembles. It's just like direct democracy, like everyone's pretty much arguing with each other. It's unlikely that you ever get to sort of nearly 100% consensus. And that's why not much gets done in Bitcoin. And a lot of people say that's a feature, not a bug. Yes, I agree. It's gotten worse every time we've taken a look at the issue. To me, it feels more like a crisis lately than it has in the past. Partly because just the reality hits home when you try to send a Bitcoin transaction and it takes days to confirm and you have to put a, you know, $3 fee on a $10 transaction. That bothers me when I see that. Does it ever get resolved? Yeah, I think one way or another it will. Um, not everybody's going to be happy with the resolution. And then even if it does, there's going to be some other conflict that comes down the road. So maybe it's, it is sort of a perpetual civil war like it always is in sort of a democratic situation. And the, the debate just kind of keeps on going. And yes, that burns a lot of people out. But if you understand that that's just the nature of the, how the system is, maybe you're un less likely to get so burned out. But a lot of brilliant people have already been burned out and sort of left. Yeah. I think that's a situation we find ourselves in right now. If you look at kind of the different community hubs, that's already the situation that they are in. In both cases, you had two different communities, right? And they're both being oppressed effectively by their own leadership, using the other side as the reason why they have to have all these onerous things in place. And if you look at either of the subreddits, that's basically it, is they're both aggressively suppressing any sort of opinion that isn't one that supports the kind of broad consensus within that. And so what you have is these groups becoming more and more insular. So the argument I've made for a long time is that in a situation where neither side actually has a reason to come to consensus outside of because people would like them to, then probably they're not going to. And in the world of Bitcoin, you don't have to because there is the ability to simply have two different chains, one of which is a let's do it the core way and one of which is a let's do it the other way. 
And I know that there are very kind of intense feelings about why that's bad for the price of Bitcoin and for the overall dominance of Bitcoin. As you know, people are concerned, it'll kind of break the Bitcoin is the one bubble. I don't actually see any other paths forward, given the current landscape and the way that things have progressed and just kind of gotten progressively worse each time we've revisited this. I do. Please. Yeah. So so what, what's the path forward then, Andreas? Why do, why do the sides come to the table and we achieve 95% consensus? First of all, I don't think we need 95% consensus really to get results. But the point of consensus rules is that when there is a situation like this, the status quo is what continues. And I think it is extremely dangerous to say that the better solution is to break in half, then have a situation where you have two coins. Because I don't think we're going to have two coins. I think you're going to have a tax on both sides that will attempt to cripple one of the two sides of the fork. Bitcoin isn't Ethereum. Bitcoin has a two-week retargeting mechanism, which only works over 2016 blocks. If you lose half the hash rate you're looking at a four-week retargeting period. If you lose more than half the hash rate, you're looking at more than four weeks retargeting period, during which the capacity of the network drops by a factor of at least two. And at that point, if you had, with the current demand, only half the capacity of transactions, that would cause mayhem on at least one side of the chain. This is not a let's part ways and Umbaja, the two chains can continue, this would involve an active attempt to annihilate at least one of the chains, if not both. Well, so I wasn't saying it's a good idea. I was saying that given the way the landscape looks right now, that seems like the path of least resistance. You're suggesting the path of least resistance is no change. But do you acknowledge that if there's no change, then that means core has won the argument and the other side has lost? And no. OK, well, I guarantee you they feel that way. <laughs> you know, like the, that's the perspective is that if the status quo continues, then core has won. There's no upgrade to the to the size of blocks or change or whatever. I don't even really care. Like it doesn't actually matter to me that much. First of all, I don't think there are unified positions or even sides in this debate. I think that one of the mistakes is to conflate company, a development group and a subreddit into one big mess. Um, so on the one side, you're looking at this idea that core is a unified something, which it isn't. Core is more, th more than 150 active developers, uh, you know, probably a couple hundred casual contributors in addition to that, right? Represented by dozens of different companies. Conflating that then with Blockstream, which is one company that, that really has very, very limited influence, and then conflating all of that with a single subreddit that is managed by a whole different group of people who neither contribute code to, to core nor work for Blockstream or, or any of the other companies in the space and then saying that's the core Blockstream acts uh, our Bitcoin, Famos, uh, you know, whatever. And on the other side, the same thing, which is conflating the developers of Bitcoin Unlimited with the RBTC subreddit, and then with Bitmain and Antminer and a couple of pools that represent that hashing here as being representative 
of a unified front. And add to that Bitcoin.com, Roger Ver, and Jihan Wu. It's, it's basically, these are not unified anything. There's a lot of swirling opinions. There's a lot of people who are picking sides. But there's no alignment here. This isn't a football game between two teams or two political parties that are unified. There's a lot of diversity even within these groups as to what opinions exist. So all of that said, the difference, though, is that there are broad lines of what people want to happen, right? On the core side, and I'm using that because I don't know what else to describe it as. I'm not saying that it's specifically the core developers or whatever. I'm saying people who support the core vision for scaling to the exclusion of other visions of scaling do have a certain set of shared beliefs, of shared desires, of shared objectives of how to move forward. And the same can also be said, broadly speaking, of the, yes, they're not formally aligned, but but ideologically, they want largely the same things. And it is advantageous for them to be you know represented in this fashion to simplify the kind of both sides. There, Do you disagree that there are two ideological approaches to doing this? One where the block size doesn't scale on-chain, that we use SegWit and things like that, which are sort of like that, but the block size remains the same. While on the other side, you have the vision of a kind of more market-driven uh, approach to how large the block size should be. Those are those are the sides as I see it. That's the primary difference. If I'm missing something, please tell me. I, I think that's a, that's a gross simplification of what is a very complex issue with very complex technical details. And honestly, that's part of the problem, because for, first of all, the core roadmap includes on-chain scaling, and it includes off-chain scaling. Part of that has to do with sequencing, right? So the core roadmap is SegWit first, and later also a hard fork block size limit increase. That is part of the roadmap, has been part of the core roadmap for almost two years now. There's a very specific reason why it's sequenced that way. But the position is not no on-chain scaling. And on the other side, similarly, it's not only on-chain scaling, but, but it's a matter, again, of sequencing what happens. Right, and it's not anti-segwit either. And it's not anti-segwit either, although one faction is virulently anti-segwit and another faction within core is virulently anti-hard and fork. But those are extreme positions within a very broad, diverse, and they don't represent the center of those two factions. So again, the idea that if nothing happens, core wins is ridiculous, because if you think about it from the perspective of the hundreds of contributors and developers who have worked for more than a year optimizing the core code base and building SegWit, not having that deployed is not a win for anyone. And there are dozens of teams working on things like Lightning Network and other technologies that depend on fixing transaction malleability. That's not a win for them either. And on the other side, of course, it's not a win if there is no block size increase ever because everything's bulked down and there's no agreement on everything. I don't think anybody wins with the status quo, but the status quo is what the consensus rules continue to do on a daily basis until there's broader agreement. But at the same time, even though Bitcoin politically is in this quagmire, technically it's working. It's still working. Even with the latest attacks, guess what happened? The network didn't go down, transactions kept being processed, etc., etc. Despite all of the doomsday scenarios, we were supposed to go into a death spiral of fee increases that would bring the network to a complete standstill and it would collapse. And yet, where are we? Oh, you have to pay a dollar to make a globally uncensorable transaction. Ooh, that's incredible. 
you, you know, it's, it's, it hasn't devolved into a failed system in any stretch of the imagination. Right. And it's worth pointing out that the fees, you could say that attacks are driving up fees and okay, perhaps maybe they are, but there is still demand for people to send transactions. And so if there was no, if no one was using Bitcoin, if no one wanted to send transactions, then those fees would drop because it wouldn't matter. And also the price is high. It's higher than it's been ever. It's at all time highs. Yeah, it's like that, that, that nightclub's so crowded, nobody ever goes anymore. Right. <laughs> Exactly. So yeah, I, I think it's important to point that out, that it's not dying. People aren't stopping using Bitcoin. There's some issues with it, but you're right, it's still working. And and also you've got this moving of the goalposts, right? So what what considers success, what what's considered failure. Um, six months ago, there were some very strong arguments that um, users would migrate en masse to altcoins. Right now we're sitting at an all-time high, and the argument against that is it would have been an all-time even higher. But, I mean, that's that's not really a, a declaration of failure here. I think Bitcoin continues to work just fine. And the idea that to resolve this crisis the best way forward is to split into two factions with all of the really technically messy damage that's going to do, that is literally cutting off your head to spite your nose. So I don't think anybody's arguing that that's kind of the best way forward. I think that... Uh, but it is the worst. <laughs> I mean, it really is the worst way forward. So if we raise fees, if we raise uh, scaling, you know, the scaling limit to, say, four megabytes in two years, and then we leave it there and don't raise it because it's unsafe at that point, then is that actually any on-chain scaling, or is that just kind of increasing to do a little bit more capacity for the clearing transactions that need to happen? I guess that's the question is... So are we so are we now entirely past the Bitcoin will be anything other than um, anything other than a settlement layer and just like lightning and other types of solutions like that? We talked about this on one of our last shows before we uh, ended. But I mean, is that is that just the accepted where we are now? I don't think anybody gets to predict what Bitcoin will be in the future. And at the same time, Satoshi didn't get to predict what it would be in the past. You can't really fit a purpose and then hope that the market accepts the purpose that has been anointed by anyone. And the market's going to do whatever the hell the market thinks it's going to do, and it's going to optimize and find an equilibrium where the market needs to find equilibrium. If, it, if that's in a settlement layer, that's in a settlement layer. If it's on-chain, it's on-chain. If it's both, it's both. The things are going to fit where they, they fit. There is no magical solution to scaling that doesn't have trade-offs, that doesn't have trade-offs in centralization, that doesn't have trade-offs in control. I think part of the issue here is not simply the how much do we scale and and at what point do we scale? Who gets to decide? I think that's the is the thorniest political problem right now. I think a lot of the objection to Bitcoin Unlimited, for example, is that it hands power unilaterally to miners to control the block size as much as they want, with nary a peep from anybody else in the consensus constituencies. And at the same time, the idea that core gets to dictate all of the changes to the code base is obviously pissing people off. So, you know, I think that the, the problem isn't what ju just what choice gets to be made, but who makes that choice. And that's really the thorniest problem we have at the moment.
Stephen uh, Pear from BitPay wrote a blog post a couple of weeks ago talking about how I actually wrote it right before they announced that BitPay was raising their minimum transaction size from four cents that they would you know allow someone to accept payment four cents to a dollar, which is a big jump, but still really small compared to most types of things out there. The case that he made was basically that this is how Bitcoin's supposed to be working, and that rather than low-value transactions scaling to altcoins, as has kind of been the perception by some people for a long time, actually what's happening is that it's scaling to off-chain. And so you have the off-chain system that allows you to do things instantly and free, right? But you don't. But you have to. You have to have that kind of level of trust. And then on the other side, you've got the the Bitcoin stuff, which is obviously higher value, but it gets you that trustless characteristic. So that kind of leads us into the next, I guess is one of the final topics for today, which is that, you know, as Bitcoin is at these all time highs, as there are concerns from various parties about what's the future of Bitcoin, some people are attributing the uh, recent uh, rise in altcoin prices to the turmoil in Bitcoin. And it strikes me that this is a pretty normal thing we see whenever the price of Bitcoin gets high, right? Like once we get near all time highs or near term highs, People say, oh, Bitcoin's expensive, and then they put their money into something that's kind of like Bitcoin, but that's different. And on the other hand, you've got people who made money or have kind of paper profits in Bitcoin who say, ah, I'd like to lock in that profit, and I can choose to either take it to dollars and have a taxable event or take it to cryptocurrency and have a maybe questionable taxable event. <laughs> the, it's kind of a broad question here. Um, Off-chain, you know, altcoins, like what are, what are we seeing? I want to touch on the second layer issue, because I think this is the critical missing piece. The idea that this is a battle between on-chain scaling and off-chain scaling. And it's not, because the market has already decided that it will do off-chain scaling. Now we're facing a choice between off-chain scaling via trusted third party with full counterparty risk, which is what you have when transactions are getting pushed to private networks, of exchanges and merchant processors who do internal transactions on their databases, right? Because we can't do them with a smart contract on a second layer that is trustless versus doing it with a smart contract on a second layer that is trustless, like Lightning or Tumblebub or T-Chan or some other payment channels. Um, part of the problem that's happening now is because Sequitis is activating, and because we don't have to fix the transaction value, but the second layer of solutions that are trustless allow you to do off-chain payment channels without having to trust counterparties, without centralization in hubs, are being instead replaced by off-chain payments in private databases with fully trusted third parties who have enormous hub centralization and concentration. So the very argument against Lightning is resulting in the exact same problem, only far, far worse being developed because the market is going to send transactions where it needs to, and you can't stop it from doing that. Who's arguing against Lightning? Or uh, did you mean SegWit? I think you mean arguments against SegWit. Well, no, but I mean, the, the, this is precisely the issue, which is that some of the arguments against SegWit is that Lightning will take away power and fee earning ability from miners. And as a result, they don't want to see that. But instead, they are still losing power and fee earning ability. They're just losing it to private databases like Coinbase and BitPay. 
which is exactly the argument Stephen Pear was making, that you will have centralized trusted third parties do that job. I would much rather see that happen on Lightning because it's a trustless protocol using Bitcoin transactions. But in order to do that, we need to fix transaction malleability. And transaction malleability can only be fixed by one solution that is proposed right now. The only solution that we have a, that's tested and that fixes transaction malleability, and that's SegWit. So this is more than on-chain versus off-chain scaling. It's also currently pushing transactions into private databases. And I think that's a huge problem. The price of Ethereum is very high. And the price of, I saw Dash is up above $70 or something like that. 100. Yeah, it almost went to, yeah, 100. Yeah, Dash almost hit 100 and Ethereum hit 40. And I don't know what Monero is doing, but it was also rallying to quite a big rally on the alts especially in the last week it's been spectacular um, the the growth in that space which again as you said this happens every time bitcoin fills up i really like this uh, chart that uh mr did in his analysis of the altcoin market where he had it as a as a system of interconnected or cisterns right like you fill one with water and and then when it gets to the top it starts overflowing into these side pools, which also fill up. And then, and then when that capacity changes, then it flows back again. We've seen this pattern. I think it's a very, very good analogy for the interplay between Bitcoin as a fee pool and the altcoins as buffers that receive value. And, and the good news is that that's good for everyone. I mean, because every time that happens, as money draws out of Bitcoin into the altcoins, the altcoins do really well. But then when Bitcoin gets less expensive, fiat starts flowing into Bitcoin and pushing the price again, and the cycle repeats. And in the end, the entire ecosystem gets bigger. Uh, and we've seen that cycle repeat again and again and again and again, and, and it keeps making the entire ecosystem bigger. I don't see this as a problem for Bitcoin. Bitcoin. I don't see this as a problem for altcoins, and I don't really see it as competition between the two. The, the entire ecosystem is doing better every time this movement happens. I mean, to keep things in perspective, yeah, we've seen a lot of growth in the altcoins lately. And, and a lot of them do have what I think are some cool features. But at the same time, the amount of transactions happening on those alts is way less than Bitcoin. Right. I, I think, and that's because a lot of them have not yet found their purpose, right? They haven't found their kill. Bitcoin's barely found its own purpose. And uh, you, you might say that it's, it's mostly speculative assets with a, a touch of safe haven, a bit of currency control and capital flight avoidance, the occasional merchant transaction, and some cross-border payments on a very, very small scale. You know, that, that's kind of the mixture of, of use cases. Uh, Ethereum, which is the second largest, is still trying to find its, its killer app and its purpose. Uh, obviously, crowdfunding, dApps, DAOs and, and other smart contracts are gradually showing how they can be applied in a, a bunch of different ways, but it's still very early, right? I mean, that's like asking what could Bitcoin do in 2011? And the answer was barely two pizzas, right? And so, and so that's, where, that's where the other markets are at the moment. And that's not a bad thing. They now have the capitalization of liquidity gradually, just through speculation, to start providing enough fuel to experiment with different market fits. And I think that's great because they will find different fits. Uh, some of them will. 
at least. And the market will decide where that fit is. But as you said, Stephanie, the, the volume is still very small. But what do you expect? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's just that I think it's fair to point out, like before we say, oh, yeah, the altcoins are doing so good and Bitcoin's struggling. Well, Bitcoin's being challenged a lot more than they are. Is Bitcoin struggling? I don't really see Bitcoin as struggling. Well, no, yeah. I don't think it's struggling. We just talked about that. But oh, oh, you mean you mean the scaling thing? Yeah, but they're good problems to have. I mean, that's that's what you wind up with is that like if you don't have that problem, then it means you're just like any of the other cryptocurrencies out there that might have had a good idea, might have amazing execution, but for whatever reason haven't found a niche where they actually can be useful. Bitcoin, you know, is unique in that it was first. And first buys you a lot, you know, when it comes to doing something like this, you know, that actually has network effect associated with it. Yeah. So, no, I mean, like and Bitcoin has had a lot of stresses and every stress has made it stronger and more resilient. And a lot of the alts have not had those stresses and challenges in the same way that Bitcoin has. Some of them have had it even worse, though, in a lot of ways, because Bitcoin was strong for a long time. And it's been difficult to attack Bitcoin in these ways simply because it had been out there for so much longer. So you're probably right in like aggregate. Like there have been way more attacks on Bitcoin simply because it's bigger and a more more tempting target. But there have been some bad hits against the small ones simply because they're doing something new and had a vulnerability that they didn't know about. Mm -hmm. I I think I think we're hearing a lot of the same silly tribalism and maximalism. On the one hand, people get defensive when they see value drawing out of Bitcoin and fueling the adults and everybody gets all excited, a lot of the Bitcoin maximalists are going, oh, they're all shit coins, they have no value, they're just scams, etc., etc. Which, you know, some of them are, uh, out of the thousands that, that exist. But at the same time, some are just simply f- trying to find their niche, and I think they have valuable differentiation. And, and it's unfair to just ignore that or to pretend that just because something that's two years old hasn't found its niche yet it doesn't mean anything but at the same time you get the opposite tribalism and maximalism from from some of the coins that have been doing very well lately they're like look we're gonna beat bitcoin at its own game that's it this is this is the new frontier the old dinosaurs are going to fall and it's the end of bitcoin haha they've got governance and scaling problems yeah well you know, you know what it takes to have governance and scaling problems? Scale. You can't have scaling problems without scale. And you don't have governance problems until you have to govern at scale. Yeah. Um, and so those are good problems to have. And quite honestly, learn the lessons learning in Bitcoin cheaply now. Because when you get to $20 billion, guess what you're going to have? Scaling problems. Uh, <laughs> when it gets to the volume of transactions the Bitcoin, eh, these things are also going to have scaling problems. You can hand wave and say sharding all day, um, but that doesn't really offer a solution. So the, the bottom line is one of the great advantages that the sin generation coins have, if you like, is that they can learn the lessons from Bitcoin on the cheap. Some of them do, some of them don't. And what gets in the way of learning is this kind of tribalism and maximalism attitude that that is constantly looking for competition, right? Uh, we win if the other guy loses. And that's just silly. Trust me, the banks are just waiting around the corner to stomp on all of this as soon as they see us falter. And, and that's really where the disruption should be happening. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Content for today's show was provided by Andreas, Stephanie, and Adam. 
Music by Jared Rubens. And this episode was edited by Matthew Zipkin. Thanks for listening. See you next time.